The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles back to John's Gospel, the 17th chapter. John chapter 17. We're coming close and quickly to the end of our study that began in chapter 13. We're going to conclude in chapter 17. My temptation is to keep on uh, through the 21st chapter and then start over, but we can't do that. We're not going to do that. We pick up Jesus' prayer. This is the high priestly prayer. This is when he takes a moment and prays in which we have the greatest view of inter-Trinitarian conversation of any place in the scripture. This is Jesus' most lengthy prayer that's, that's been recorded. It's the most insightful prayer into his relationship with the Father. We see his longings. We see his desires. But we also see his intercession. We know in part by this prayer what Jesus is doing right now in heaven at the throne of God. We learn from Romans that he's praying for us, that the Spirit is praying for us. How does God pray within the Godhead about believers. Well, the 17th chapter of John certainly gives us a great insight into that. We'll pick it up this morning in verse 9, where we left off after verse 8 last week. He turns his attention to that of protection for the disciples. John 17, beginning at verse 9. Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I've come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them has perished but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. And because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Anyone who's experienced the love and care of another knows what it's like to hear this phrase. Be careful. I grew up with two other brothers and a sister. I was the eldest, and I, uh, um, I had much need of hearing that from my mother's lips almost every time I left my house. Be careful. I remember when I, uh, when I got my license and it was time to drive, my dad sat me down and gave me the be careful talk. Be careful. And now my grandmother, I, I'll never forget my grandmother who lived with us for a, a while. She was... Um, from another generation, I loved my, my mamaw, as we called her so much, but she was convinced of something that I never really figured out, because I would just be going out with friends, and while she lived with us, she would say, Ricky, be careful. I'd say, okay. 
And she would stop me. No, you really need to be careful. And I would say, okay, again. And she would say, you know you need to be careful. And I would say, of what? And she would give me answers that I kid you not that went something like this. There's people out there. And they're out to get you. And I began developing a little bit of conspiracy, insecurity. Like, are there people out there who are out? She was convinced that everyone in this world was after me and probably had good reason to be. Be careful. Remember those speeches we receive were always from the heart of someone who cared for us. Parents, you understand that more than any when you send your kid out to do anything from drive to ride a longboard to do anything else. You want them to be careful. Well, that's exactly where Jesus has come to in this prayer. He wants the disciples cared for. He wants them to be protected from the dangers that they're about to walk into. They are about to walk into a firing line of spiritual and physical persecution. He's about to lead them. He has been their protector. He could raise the dead. He, as we'll see in chapter 18, he could waylay a Roman cohort of soldiers just by the simple uttering of his name, I am. But this great protector was about to leave them and leave them alone in the world without his physical presence, but they would have his spiritual omniscient presence. To understand this next section of Jesus' prayer in John 17, you need to take this idea of protection and care to the ultimate and nth degree. It's Thursday night. The disciples have gathered. They've eaten a meal. They've made their way down the slope off the Temple Mount. They're about to cross the Kidron Valley and go into a garden where Jesus is going to dismiss himself with three of the, the disciples and enter into a time of prayer in which he will sweat great drops of blood. In only a few hours, he is going to be hanging on a tree, dying. This is his last opportunity to instruct the men, and I think perhaps his greatest instruction came simply in the way he prayed for them. It obviously made an impact on John. John records this prayer with such precision and detail. Yes, he had the aid of the Holy Spirit, but it seems that this was given with such passion that John's memory just wrapped itself around that, and he could with ease utter through his quill and his scroll the words of the Lord, his concern, his care for his men. This was this was it. This was goodbye. This was the deathbed conversation that he was having with these men, and he prayed for them. As he's coming toward the climax and the conclusion of this prayer, this is where he really drills down and prays most for these 11 men who have stuck with him to the end. And he prays for their protection. He prays for their well-being. He prays for their provision. He wants them cared for and listen, he wants them cared for in a way that God obviously hears, the Father, but he wants them to hear his prayer for their protection. The reasons for their protection. The way he would protect them. And it's way different than you and I might envision protection. We can outline it like this. Jesus prays for the protection of his representatives from four threats. And the way Jesus prays for his men here, I'm convinced he continues to offer intercession for us now. This reflects his heart 
for his representatives, his heart for his disciples. And those of us who have embraced Christ by faith, I think these are the same ways and areas that Jesus is praying for us as well. He prays for protection for his representatives from four threats. The first threat is verses 9, 10, and 11. Protection from the world. Protection from the world. This is a most curious section of Jesus' prayer. He says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. First of all, Jesus is not praying for the world. He's not praying evangelistically here. He's praying for the men who would suffer persecution from the world. But of those whom you have given me, And now we go back into that inner Trinitarian solidarity that's shared with the relationship that Jesus and believers have, this all-in-one, one-in-all, and it sounds like doublespeak. It's, It's redundantly circular on purpose. Listen to what he says. I pray for those that you have given me. Okay, so God the Father has given some to Jesus. For they are yours, but these people that God has given the Son are the Father's. And the things that are mine are yours. Those that God the Father gave Jesus still belong to the Father. And those that are yours are mine. So those that belong to the Father still belong to the Son. And I have been glorified in them. We shouldn't expect anything other than language that might be overly solidarity in its nature and solidifying in its nature and and a bit confusing to us. This is the God one and three and three and one talking in the interpersonal relationships with the Trinity, and it ought to be a bit confusing to us. Those that the Father has, He's given to the Son, and that's I still am overwhelmed that believers are a love gift from the Father to the Son. You want to have a, a wonderful time of meditation and prayer? Just think on that. God gave us and our faith in God our faith in the gospel, he gave us to the Son. And they are yours. We still belong to the Father. And the things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And he just overstates the point on purpose that to belong to Jesus is to belong to the Father, is to belong to the Spirit, is to belong to the one true and living God who is one in three, three in one. Very simply here, Jesus prays for these men who would be the representatives of the gospel in the world as Jesus is leaving the planet. There's a sharp distinction between his disciples and the world made. He makes the point, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for you. What does it mean when he says world, by the way? The word world, first um, we're told that Jesus loves the world in John 3.16. Elsewhere, Jesus instructs us to pray for and love our enemies who are in the world in Matthew 5.44 and Luke 23.43. And if you look down to verse 20 and 21 and verse 23, the world was to be reached through the ministry of the disciples. So it's not that Jesus has no concern for the world, He's telling the disciples here, you're going to be in a crooked and perverse generation. You will need protection in and from the world. The point here is that the Lord was praying for the protection of these men who would experience the very worst of the world. The very worst of the world and worldliness is not rock and roll music. It's not the drug culture. The very worst of the world is its attack on the truthfulness of the gospel. The foundation for his prayer is that God the Father would protect 
these men. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you ought to be asking, hang on, I know that everything Jesus prays would come true, right? I mean, we have to assume that. He's perfect. He had the will of God in his mind. He had the will of God in the word that he taught and understood and wrote himself. Everything that he prayed would have been true and come true. Yet Jesus prays for the protection of these men, almost all of whom would die for the gospel. How does that work? Father, protect them from the world, and they're going to be killed by the world. How in the world does that work out? I think we get an insight in 2 Timothy 4 from Paul, who gives us a great angle on this understanding theologically. Paul said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, his going, he- going to heaven, has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me and the, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all of those who love his appearing. Is it possible that our ultimate protection from the world will be our delivery from it through death and entrance into heaven? The answer has to be yes. Jesus wants the Father to protect these men, and yet they died for their faith. They were delivered. They were protected when they were brought into his heavenly presence. Let's go on. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world. Now, Jesus is speaking futuristically there. He's speaking as if they need to remember this issue when he's gone tomorrow. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are. They're in the world, and I come to you. So he's going to be in heaven. The disciples will be left here on the planet, just as you and I are. Holy Father, the second time he calls him Father, and I mean Holy Father, keep them in your name. He qualifies that. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Ah, now we're starting to find out why Jesus strained language in the previous verse and was saying, I'm in you, you're in me, mine are yours, yours are mine. What is all this? He tells them that that solidarity takes full bloom at the end of verse 11, that they may be one, even as we are. We are what? One. Jesus' departure from the world back to heaven is so near that he speaks of it in the present tense. Even Jesus calls the Father holy. Isn't that amazing? This wasn't in distinction from who he was. This was in essence of who God the Father is. This adjective, by the way, gives us a great insight into Jesus' prayer for these men with reference to God's holiness. He's asking for them to be kept from the evil one, as we'll see in a moment. And at the end of the verse, he also explains that their oneness is critical to the mission. Unity is important. Unity is important for the gospel. He's already said, they, the world will know that you love me when you love them. That's not what he said. When you have love for who? One another. You will present something to the world when you love one another that's unique. The world doesn't understand us. Just look around. We're all sorts of 
colors and sizes and shapes and dispositions and preference sets and styles and on and on and on. Yet what binds us together is the gospel. And the world should look at this and say, that's unique. This doesn't happen in any other context in our culture. We're not bound. We, we normally, I mean, look around at us. We wouldn't be hanging out. Our preferences don't match up very well. Our desires, our interests don't match up very well, but our love for Christ does. And in Him bringing into one body the love and unity that we share, He's saying this is going to be a force that the world cannot and will not comprehend. Unity is critical for the gospel mission. Just for a second, look down at verse 21 for a moment. We're going to be here in just a few weeks. This idea of unity has been spilled out of Jesus' heart since the, since the supper. He, he wants them to know that the people in the world need to see a unified gospel love between believers or they will doubt the validity of the truthfulness of our faith. And down in verse 21 he says, that they may be all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see that? So that the world may believe. Do you have any slight understanding and appreciation how important our unity is to the gospel? He actually makes that a reason in his prayer that people will be attracted to Jesus is the way that we relate to one another. Critically important. That's why we go back and we just had the Lord's table, but I'll go back and say this again. We have to keep, we must keep short accounts with those in the church especially. If we have issues within the body, it is a massive ink blot on a white, pure tablecloth with reference to what the world understands about the gospel. It's what they notice. It's what distracts them. That gives us an insight, by the way, in what Satan would like to see most in any church and in our church, which is what? Disunity. I've got to be honest with you. I, we're going to talk about Satan in just a moment. Jesus is going to bring the evil one up. I, I, I don't have very... Um, I don't think Satan would attack us at our doctrinal level right now. You've got 19 years of a guy who preached you got me falling on his heels. We've got doctrinal statements all over the Internet. You've, I mean, I've, I've got 20 years of sermons floating around the Internet. It would be awfully hard for any person in this pulpit, anybody in our Sunday school class, to teach error without it being jumped on pretty quickly. I don't think Satan is trying to get us confused doctrinally at Mission Road. What I do think he loves to do is get us disunified. Look for ways that... People have suspicions or dispositions toward one another that are unloving, uncaring, don't follow through, don't resolve. Satan is alive and at work, and he loves to work in the church. Why? Because he comes as an angel of darkness? No. What does he come as? An angel of light. He wants to look like this is a righteous way of doing something only to have it be a sinful way of approaching it. And Jesus is saying, I pray for their unity. This unity is what's going to keep the gospel attractive 
to the world. We'll come back to that when we get to verse 20 in a few minutes, in a few weeks. Let's go from that protection from the world. We're going to come back when we look at the enemy in a second. So just hold that in your mind. To secondly, protection from defection. Protection from defecting from the faith. Verse 12 says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, and you have given in, in the name which you have given me. Listen to the footnote. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. What name did God give Jesus? Was it Jesus? Was it Christ? Was it Lord? The bottom line is the name represents the totality of his person. I kept them in who I was. I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Except the son of perdition. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 12 is a brief retrospective. It's a memory. Jesus affirms his faithfulness in keeping the ones that the Father had given him. He had been a faithful shepherd. He had looked after these men in the way that the Father had assigned him. And at the heart of this verse is the sovereignty of God in keeping those who have faith in the Son. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 says what? He who began a good work in you will maybe... What does it say? He will complete it the day of Christ Jesus. Those who he's called, he will sanctify and glorify. John 10, verse 30, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is an amazing degree of protection. Protection from the world, but also protection from defecting from the faith. The question keeps arising over and over in our lives and experience in the church. What about that person who looked so promising? What about that person who looked so faithful? What about that person who walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, signed the card, went to camp, served as this, did that, taught, preached, you name it. But now they've walked away from the Lord. What do we do with them? Well, Jesus was very clear in Matthew chapter 13 when he said, the gospel will have different reactions. Remember the parable of the soils? Oh, and three of those soils, it's going to, soils, it's going to look great. It's going to come, it's going to sprout. The birds could come. The rocky soil could take over. Birds could snatch the seed away. Some people will look really good at first. But it's those who endure, who are genuinely converted. Those are the people that God will keep. John says they went out from us because they were not of us. Paul calls uh, some immoral people who claim Christ so-called believers. And then we have right here again Judas. Spent a significant amount of time almost a year ago looking at Judas. It's hard to be exact on what Scripture Jesus is referencing here, but based on Matthew's reference to Judas' actions in Matthew 27, 3 um, to 10, uh, Zechariah 11, 12 to 13 is probably what he has in mind, the 30 pieces of silver he bailed on Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 109, verse 8, let his days be few, let another take his office. What do we make of Judas, though? What, 
What do we do with Judas? What, if anyone should have believed, wouldn't it have been someone who spent three years living and traveling with the Lord? Yet, yet he didn't. He rejected Christ. This text calls Judas the son of perdition, literally the son of damnation, the son of hell. We have to ask, was, was Judas, Judas a robot? Did he have no choice? He was fulfilling what he was doing according to this text, according to Scripture, right? He did this that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Did he have a choice? The answer is, yes, he had a choice. He acted freely in his decisions, but at the same time was a part of God's purpose. When Jesus was handed over to be tried and crucified, it was from the hand of God at the hand of Judas. He's the most frightening example of any person to me in the Bible. He had access to Jesus. He heard Jesus teaching. He saw his miracles. He witnessed his example. He was a part of his work. He traveled with him. He no doubt went out when they went out two by two and taught on behalf of Jesus. Still, Judas rejected and even sold out the Lord. Flip the page over to John 18. After he finishes praying, when Jesus has spoken his words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where the there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now, Judas, also who was betraying him, knew that place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This is remarkable. Jesus knew to go there because he knew that Judas would come and turn him in there. He didn't run. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, that's, that's an underlinable phrase in your Bible. He knew it all. This was no surprise. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming to him, went forth and said, I love this. He walks to these Romans, walks to Judas, doesn't hide behind. He puts the disciples physically behind him. He walks forward and says to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Literally, he just said, I am. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Judas turns him over. He's a turncoat. He of all people should have known better. You think Judas never heard Jesus teaching on hell? You think Judas didn't know the parable of Lazarus? And yet he's called here the son of perdition. We could talk for weeks and months and years about the theological nuances and studying the life of Judas. Here's my question though. Is there any of Judas's heart in any of ours? See, so what do you mean by that? Those who can be in and around and ministered by and using the truth, and yet in the end, come to that place in Matthew chapter 7 where you show up at the judgment seat and try to say, look what we've done. Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he says what? 
Depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, you had right kind of beliefs just as the devil has the right kind of belief. Jesus prays that no one of the 11 will end up like Judas. That's the contrast. Only one Judas. The rest of the 11 men would die faithfully. Thirdly, he asks for protection from despair. Protection from despair, the threat of despair. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. We've studied joy so much in the, in the previous chapter, chapter 16. In order to understand this verse, you've got to go back to chapter 15 for a moment. Chapter 15, verse, uh, or back in chapter 15, to uh, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be full and may be full in you, so that your joy may be pleroma, overflowing, filled up to the brim. Jesus didn't want us to have joy that was just making us temporarily happy. This was joy that transcended every threat of unhappiness. How? He prays and promises for their joy. How? Because it is, look at the text, His joy. After the resurrection, the truth that Jesus uh, prays here in these first first five verses will be center stage. He'll be enjoying the Father again. His joy of being with the Father, he prays, we would have and we would enjoy. We've said over and over, there is no excuse for an unhappy Christian. No matter what would make us unhappy on this earth, we have something even greater to look forward to. I'm still shocked. I mean, there's almost nothing to say about this. Jesus says, I want them to have my joy. How much joy does Jesus have? Well, you have to Translate that into where is Jesus going to be when he's going to be transferring this joy? He's going to be in heaven. So his joy came from understanding and knowing the Father. Understanding and knowing God is what brings, establishes, encourages, equips. It's what generates joy. We will have no joy by studying anything other than God. And that brings us to really the most confusing part of at least what the church deals with in this passage. Number four, protection from Satan. Jesus prays for protection from Satan. Verse 14, I've given them your word. That here means not the Bible as much as the gospel, the, the, the logos, the, the word of truth, the message of the truth of how man can be saved. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because... They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Stop right there. Why does the world hate Christians so much? Because our lives and our message demand a moral accountability in their life and in their thinking. That's why. You ever heard holier than thou, goody, two shoes, you name it. That's because there's a convicting presence of a believer's life on the life of an unbeliever. They hate us for that. Because they are not of the world. They, if you want to see great effort, watch an unbeliever try to get a believer to sin. Ever experienced that? Say this, watch this, do this. Because if they can bring you down, they raise themselves up in their estimation and falsely think that they are as acceptable to God as we are because we would act 
just like them. I do not ask for you to take him out of the world. He's not asking for instantaneous rapture. Isn't there a sense that it would be really great? Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Will you believe? Yes, I believe. Then you're raptured. You got to say, who would be asking them those questions, I guess? It doesn't happen like that. He leaves us in the world. He's not asking God the Father to take them and us out of the world, but to keep us, here it is, from the evil one. Same phrase Jesus uses in Matthew 6 where he says, ask the Father to protect us from evil, the evil one, literally. Here we find the source of the world's hostility. Look back at the, um, at the first phrase. I've given them your word. It's the word that makes people so upset as we live and teach it, and they have the energizing presence of the evil one who uses the world and its persecution to threaten us. God's word draws fire from the world. Why? Because it convicts and confronts sin just as the example of the believer should. But look at that last phrase again. Keep them from the evil. What, what does that mean? We are, we're, we're, we're a part of a, of a stage in history where people have actually said that part of your prayer life, it's hard to even say this, that part of your prayer life includes praying to Satan. You say, whoa, what do you mean by that? Have you ever been in a place where someone has been praying and they say, and, and we bind you, Satan? I thought we were talking to God. And you just brought the devil into this prayer time? What does that even mean? Are we told anywhere where we are to talk to the evil one? No, not at all. In fact, let's go a step further. What if Satan was messing around with our lives? And we were saying, I bind you. I, which, by the way, what does that mean? If we bind him, I mean, tie him up, how does he get loose? Can one person tie him up forever? Or is he just like Houdini and can undo his handcuffs? How do you even bind Satan? And if I pray to bind Satan now, does that mean he can't work in India or Pakistan? Satan's a local entity, one place, one time, one being. He can't do that. He says, I want you to keep them from the evil one means keep them secure in the gospel no matter the evil one. What if we had modern people in the radical arm of the charismatic movement who were around, they were with Eliphaz and, and, and Bildad during Job's time. They came and they saw Job, loses his possession, loses his children, loses his, his wherewithal, loses his money, and they say, obviously Satan has at work here, and he was. And they say, we're going to have a binding ceremony. And they say, Satan, we bind you from Job and we ask you to leave him alone. Which makes me awkwardly uncomfortable praying to Satan in the first place. But let's say they did that. And let's say, for example, for, for, for argument that Satan materializes. You know what he would say? God sent me to do this. I'm here at God the Father's bidding. We're to be kept from the evil one in the context in that we are to be kept faithful in the midst of the evil one's attacks. The evil one's going to be around. We are, do you believe in demons? Do you believe in the other side, the, 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 the principalities and the forces and the 
in the heavenlies that work against us, if, if you don't believe in that, let me tell you that the scriptures do. Well, footnote on that, I doubt, honestly, whether Satan is ever going to mess with your life personally. I don't think we, any of us rank Satan's attack. I mean, by, by I guess, uh, representation, we can talk about the enemy attacking us. But he can be one place at one time, and we see from... Um, uh, from his working in Daniel, that he's probably working in higher governmental systems to delude nations even more than telling us, do this or don't do that. But he has many co-workers and many demons who have spent their entire existence, get this, with never a wink of sleep. They have never closed their eyes in sleep. All they do is observe humanity and know how to lay traps for tem- of temptation for sin. Satan is not out to scare us as Hollywood would have us think. He's out to make a sin. He doesn't come with a pitchfork and pointed uh, things off of his head. He comes as an angel of light making you think this is a good way to live when it's actually a sinful way to live. That's what Jesus is praying for. Keep them from the evil one. Gerald Borchert says this. The prayer of Jesus was not... For God to send something like rescue planes to evacuate the disciples from the hostile setting in the world, such a plan would destroy God's mission through them. Nor was it to wrap them in some plastic, danger-free safety casing where they would never encounter evil, but the prayer of Jesus was to protect them from the succumbing to the onslaught of evil or the evil one, end quote. He wants us to recognize the enemy's attack and resist it. We have to look at this just very briefly in 1 Peter chapter 5. This will come to fruition. Peter is writing to a group of believers who were experiencing what Jesus had promised. They're going to hate you. They're going to turn against you. They're going to try to murder you. They're going to try to get you incarcerated. He's speaking in 1 Peter to a group of people who were suffering. And this is what he says to them. He gives them some insight. Look down at verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That sounds pretty threatening. How in the world do we deal with the enemy? Look at the next verse. But... Resist him. Be firm in your faith. There it is. Faith in God fights the temptation and attacks of the devil. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. (laughs) Verse 10 is amazing. And after you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yeah, you're going to suffer, but that's just a little while. What if you suffer your whole life? That's still just a little while is the point. Jesus said, deliver us from the evil one. He taught us to pray that way. Deliver us from the evil one in Matthew chapter 6. So what do we do with that? We don't go looking for the devil. We learn to recognize 
that the minions of the enemy are at work trying to get us to sin, not trying to scare us with horror movies. That's not a justification to go watch horror movies either, which are usually full of sin. Jesus wants us protected. He is personally involved in our protection. Here's the great question though. Ready? Eye contact. Ready? Are we putting ourselves in dangerous situations with the gospel for which we need protection? Are we, are, are we pretty safe even without this prayer? Are you putting yourself in harm's way emotionally, vocationally, talking to coworkers, educationally like Daniel did? He was being educated with all the Babylonians and still he stood for the God. Are we in a place where this even applies? Where Jesus' protection, his prayer for our protection even matters or do we live a pretty safe, evangelistically benign existence where we don't even need this prayer? I don't know about you. I want to need this prayer. I don't need it enough. I want to be in positions where I need God's protection that Christ prayed for and delivery from the evil one and the unity of faith with the solidarity of other believers for the advancement of the gospel. Did Jesus pray for you? We're going to see that in the next section. But he only prays for believers, those who place their trust and faith in him, those who are saved. Otherwise, you're in the category of being in the world, unsaved, apart from the reality of God and the hope of eternity. And This is a good day when you can stop and pursue the opportunity to repent and to come to Christ. He has thrown the door of mercy open and says, if you don't know him, if you are lost in your sins, if you are dying and going to a Christless eternity in hell, you don't have to. You can repent and believe and respond and don't wait till tomorrow. I love what Spurgeon says, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. If you would today hear his voice, hearken your hearts and believe the gospel. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.